Tonight on Hops and Box Office Flops, we assemble to discuss the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And by harnessing the power of the Mind Stone, we will whittle down 23 mostly good to great films to our personal top 10. Here we go. Hops and Box Office Flops. A place where we can celebrate the underdog films, the bombs, the disasters, the much maligned movies that have drowned in their infamy. So please sit back, grab a beer, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. As I said to Hops and Box Office Flops, we are presented by RevengeTheFans.com. I am the Thunderous Wizard. This is officially our 27th episode. I am here with Captain Cash. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell everybody what we're drinking for this big MCU blowout. Hey everybody, I'm Captain Cash. You know me from the cosplay on the co- on the Instagrams and the, uh, the Twitters. Tonight we are drinking something very special from Evil Twin Brewing. This is 8 pound, 6 ounce, newborn infant Jesus. Because this is my turn, and I like the Christmas version the best. So, welcome to what's going to be one of my favorite pods. Okay, and we are also with Chumpzilla. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself. Howdy, everybody. Thanks for having me. And uh, cheers to that there, Captain Cash. So, fellas, it's been uh, 11 years, 23 movies, $22.5 billion in global box office. The high being Endgame, the highest grossing movie of all time with 2.7 plus billion. And the low being Angsty, I got fired after this movie, Incredible Hulk, with (laughs) 263.4 million. Uh, The first major arc of the MCU has officially come to an end. I think it's uh, pretty safe to say that we all found it pretty satisfying. And true to Tony Stark's words, part of the journey is the end. So this is a celebration uh, it should be a fun episode, uh, considering the last couple have been mostly negative. <laughs> John Carter wasn't that bad. Wasn't that good. Wasn't that bad. It wasn't as good as any of the movies we'll discuss here tonight. I'll just leave it at that. Not by a wide margin, no. So Endgame wrapped up the Infinity War saga. So we feel it's a fun little exercise. We're going to take that 23 right. We're going to make our own top 10. I'm sure there'll be some differing opinions. Uh, and because of that, why don't you kind of outline how this is all going to work, Captain Cash? So what we're going to do is we'll each individually give you guys what our top ten was right off the bat. So if you just wanted to know what do these idiots think of the top ten movies, we'll get that to you. Uh, but from there, we'll go from seven to ten, from six to four, and then from three to one, what our top movies were discussing the highest seed first. So if, for example, uh, The Thunderous Wizard has a movie ranked at 10 that I have ranked at 3, we'll discuss it at 3 rather than 10. Okay. It uh, sounds a little more confusing than it actually is. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, We'll just start with my top 10. Number 10, Thor Ragnarok. Number 9, Ant-Man and the Wasp. Number 8, Iron Man. Seven, Guardians of the Galaxy. Six, Avengers Endgame. And I know, listeners, I gave this a pretty poor grade the first time around in that uh, group pod, but boy, it hit me on all the feels the second time. Number five, Avengers Infinity War. 
Number four, The Avengers. Three, Black Panther. Two, Spider-Man Far From Home. And number one, the only right answer, Captain America, The Winter Soldier. So, Captain Cash, why don't you give us your top ten? I feel like the only right answer is highly subjective in a top ten, but I'm moving forward. Uh, My number ten, I had it as Captain America, First Avenger. Number nine, Iron Man. Eight, Civil War. Seven, Black Panther. Six, the controversial one, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Five at Endgame, four, Infinity War. My top three, Winter Soldier at three, Ragnarok at two, and number one, really what I feel like is the grandfather of them all, Avengers. Okay, and uh, Chubzilla. Well, I don't agree with either of your lists, but I have to give Mr. Wizard some credit because at least he got number one right. So for my top 10, I have at number 10, Age of Ultron, number nine, Black Panther, number eight, Infinity War, seven, Ragnarok, six, Iron Man, number five, Guardians of the Galaxy, number four, The Avengers, at three, Civil War, number two, Endgame, and of course, the clear-cut number one, The Winter Soldier. It is the clear-cut number one. I appreciate that, Chubzilla. Uh, it's not our fault that Captain Cash is sometimes an idiot. Two data points are not a trend, gentlemen. Somebody's got to be wrong here, and it's not a... They are on this pod. <laughs> so now we're going to go back, as Captain Cash stated. I'll go back to my 10 through 7. Um, obviously, you had Ragnarok higher, Captain Cash, so we will not be discussing it now. Uh, what neither of you had on your list was Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I find a little insulting because Paul Rudd is the most charismatic person in the MCU. And I really chose that movie because of not only him, but his trio of pals, Michael Pena, T.I., I hope I'm pronouncing this guy's name right, David Dasmalchian. Uh, Their chemistry is what drives the Ant-Man films. So even though they're sort of a minor part of the proceedings, I could watch Michael Pena do his little story shtick all day. It just never gets old. That is pretty spectacular. I'll give you that that this movie improves so much upon sort of the physics of the shr- with the shrinking cars and the way they sort of worked all that in. Uh, I really liked it. I had a great time. It was it was a nice reprieve from how heavy Infinity War was. So it was like a, you know, it was a palate cleanser. Uh, I will say... Yeah. It'd probably be higher on my list if Ghost was at all intriguing, which she was not. Uh, but unlike most of the unintriguing villains, they didn't kill her, so she's got that going for her, I guess. And then Thunderbolts, Thunderbolts, and in, in Phase Five, baby. Yeah, I uh, Walt Goggins is the man, and they don't utilize him particularly well in this movie. He's just another schmarmy waste of a villain. That uh, you know, you could have had the movie without him; it would have mattered. He deserved better. So I, I mostly agree, like, I like Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I feel like it's certainly stronger than Ant-Man itself. And to all your points, I actually, I like Ghost, I like the introduction of uh, Bill Forrester, and I thought it was awesome to have uh, the inclusion of Hope as the Wasp was something that really, you felt the lack of in Ant-Man that you didn't, obviously, in Ant-Man and the Wasp. But I think, exactly to your point, they got much smarter about the, shrink grow how that can be used and some of the grow stuff you couldn't do because giant man wasn't a thing yet but uh, again it's an enjoyable movie didn't make my list but i get why it's there 
Paul Rudd, baby. Yeah. Pa- Paul Rudd is the most charismatic vampire ever. Great guy. <laughs> From yeah. Kansas City. Fuck. Yeah. Gotta Fuck you, Sparkly Edward. This movie did exactly what you want a sequel to do. And it built upon the first movie. You can see where the budget went. You know, the effects were better. There's more shrinking. And, you know, like again, it raised the stakes in that regard. It improved on a lot of areas. The addition of the Wasp as a character was great. Uh, but I would argue that, you know, as fun as this movie was, it did end on a low note. Uh, and that post credit scene was a gut punch. Yeah, um, that was brutal. Which was great. I, I, again, I think that was another a really strong uh, way to tie this movie into the, to the broader narrative. But it just didn't stand out to me. It just wasn't important enough, I guess, in the overall arc for, to really stick out to me with all these other great movies. And I would still argue that Ant-Man's biggest moment in the series is the airport battle in Civil War. So when your biggest movie isn't in one of your two solo movies, like, you know, it's tough for those movies to stand out. That's fair. Um, the biggest problem with Ant-Man 1, which is why I didn't include it, is because it feels really derivative to Iron Man. And then this yeah. movie was a lot uh, more fresh, and it did the team up. And But, yeah, it's self-contained. This movie, aside from them being snapped out of existence at the end and then setting up him being saved by a rat, who's the true hero of Endgame... I contested that rat was Loki. Uh, didn't really matter that much uh, on the grand scheme of things. So, uh, But I, it's just a fun movie. And to your point, the villain certainly didn't matter. Oh, no, not at all. She was terrible. Uh, cool, a cool villain looked cool, cool effect. But yes. Yeah, I really enjoyed the cool effect. That was cool. So that is the only movie uh, that I had in my 10 through 7 that was not ranked on one of your lists or was ranked higher than one of your lists. So yeah. uh, we will move on to so, you, Captain Cash. Before we do that, run us through your your top, your bottom 10 through 7 one more okay. time. Okay, so again, I had Thor Ragnarok at 10. Ant-Man and the Wasp, which we just discussed, 9, 8, Iron Man, 7, Guardians of the Galaxy. All right, so my back four are Captain America First Avenger, Iron Man, Civil War, and Black Panther. And I think the only one of my back ten, or the only one of my back four that doesn't appear somewhere higher is Captain America First Avenger. And I realize of the phase ones, this was... This is generally probably considered the most hokey, but for the casting alone, this movie nailed it for me. Uh, it gave us Evans, it gave us Hallie Atwell as Peggy Carter, and Peggy Carter is perfect. Stanley Tucci in this movie fucking kills it. Like everything that Tucci does is just so good. The whole speech about, you know, the first country that the Nazis invaded was their own. You know, stay who you are, a good a good man, not a perfect soldier. The whole, you know, is this a test? Yes. <laughs> it, he, it's just so good. You can really believe Abraham Erskine helped to inspire Cap to be better than he is. All to say nothing of the fact Cap is amazing before he gets the serum. The grenade scene alone, where he dies on the dummy grenade... Like, when people ask me, what's Captain America's superpower? I show them that scene. That's how much I I really feel like First Avenger laid the ground floor for everything that came after for Cap and did a lot of smart things just with the setting 
uh, in general. Uh, of the things that are kind of lackluster about it, I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is great, but he's basically there to be Tommy Lee Jones. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's a little distracting when it's like, and we hired this guy. He's going to play the role you know he's going to play. It's kind of like hiring The Rock. Yeah, The Rock is going to play a character, but he's, he's going to be The Rock. I also kind of feel like... Are you comparing Tommy Lee Jones and The Rock in terms of their acting career and range? Not range. <laughs> not range. No, no. Well, I think it's mostly the range is what you're saying. It is It is not the range. I am saying that they both have a persona uh, uh, in The Rock's case, physically competent spy... <laughs> bodyguard superhero but funny and Tommy Lee Jones cantankerous old war veteran uh, and okay and he's, I, I he's making my point you're s- you're seriously underselling Tommy Lee Jones I'm not trying to yeah. undersell Tommy Lee Jones he does a great job he just doesn't do anything unexpected uh, no I think he's underselling both Tommy Lee Jones and the rock you're totally ignoring his comedy chops in the men in black franchise is the straight man with a, a bit of a sense of humor. Which, again, I'm not saying that Tommy Lee Jones doesn't <laughs> have that range. I am simply saying that he doesn't exercise that range to any great degree in this film. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. And then, Have you never seen Man of the House, where he's the Texas Ranger responsible for protecting a group of cheerleaders? Great comedic timing. I'm all in on that. Yeah. yeah. But then I, th- I feel like the... The place where Captain America stumbles, where Black Panther doesn't, is that Captain America really kind of plays it safe vis-a-vis the Nazis. They really quickly are like, oh, yeah, it's Hydra. And then then the Nazi thing is kind of swept under the rug. And not for nothing, but the Hydra salute is the dumbest goddamn thing. Both fists out. And I know they say, hail Hydra. But all I can hear is hang glider. Yeah, I would not. I would not have done that. Still, I really like this movie. It's something I can rewatch. I, I enjoy it. Uh, to your point, here's why uh, I I enjoy it. It is the hokiest. It's it's a phase one movie in the fact that it's it's definitely weaker than the sequels that preceded uh, preceded it for Cap. And yeah, that's fair. Hydra is a useless nemesis. They have an entire war machine, and they're defeated by three dudes in Captain America. And it, it never at any point in that movie do you believe he's in danger whatsoever until he has to crash the plane. And that's the biggest problem with it. He's never, oh, goddamn. ever in danger. He just destroys Hydra, an entire army, with Dum Dum Dugan, a guy that dies halfway through the movie, Bucky, and then I forget the other guy's name, um... Jim Morita. Yes. So it's that's that's the failing of the movie. It's it is so throwback 1940s in the sense that the hero's the best at everything. He can't lose. Don't worry. I love the the morals and values it instills that character with because that's who he is and it really does set the table for him. But when your movie's devoid of drama, it's not a good thing. And also Hugo Weaving is I, I, people like him as the Red Skull. The Red Skull was just another crap villain, and he could have been a tremendous one because he's a very con- layered and contextualized villain, and he's flat as can be in this movie, and his face is rubber. Are we saying the layering is 
the Nazi is layered? Because I'm not sure the Nazi is as layered as you want him to be. No. Have you ever read the, the comic series about his origins, about a poor kid growing up in Germany post-World War One, and how he became I, the way he is? It's interesting. I feel like you're trying to, to, to make explore. me empathize with the Red Skull. No, you don't, not gonna... you don't empathize with him. Do you empathize with Homelander? No, but he's a good villain because you understand why he is the way he is. Fair enough. And, I will say that this movie does have some good like, uh, <clears throat> the visual look of the movie in terms of the time period you can definitely tell they brought some people in that had worked on the Rocketeer yeah right, yeah, right. well it's and, the director is it the same director yeah Joe yeah, Johnson I thought, I thought it was a producer yeah it's the same director you're right uh, and you can definitely see that influence and I think that was a good choice because I think they really did a good job of making this movie kind of hokey. I think that was somewhat intentional for the nostalgia right. factor. Uh, but the budget for this was lower than that for The Incredible Hulk. So to your point about the effects with the Red Skulls makeup and, and that costume, yeah, they probably didn't have enough money to get that done right. And it doesn't. some of that stuff doesn't hold up. But the moral compass part, the backstory... It's a very serviceable origin story. But yeah, the biggest problem with it, as you pointed out, Mr. Wizard, is that the sequels are so much better that it's easy to just kind of forget about this movie. A strong man who has known power all his life may lose respect for that power. But a weak man knows the value of strength. Stay who you are. Not a perfect soldier, but a good man. Fucking Tucci! Oh, Erskine, I would, I would, uh, every time. I would buy that way more if you weren't currently wearing the in- Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah, we should probably say as we are doing this, we we do a Skype video so we can try to coordinate how we talk. I am absolutely wearing an Infinity Gauntlet I made. Was it 2018 for a Doctor Doom costume? Yeah, and uh, and Chumzilla is absolutely wearing a uh, Captain America helmet. Uh, this is with our crew. You're dropping the ball here. It's easy to uh, talk about power when you've got all the stones, Erskine. That's all I'm saying. All the stones right here. I I was born with both stones. The only <laughs> stones I would need. Okay. I'd like to point out, I didn't realize you guys were video chatting on the previous pods. So I feel <laughs> sort of like an idiot now. Because it definitely does help with the timing a bit when you can see the other people's faces. It does help, yeah. Yeah, thanks for not cluing me in. Peek behind the curtain, everybody. This is what we do. Yeah. So why don't you go through the rest of your top ten, because I, I believe that's the only one you've got that is lower. Yeah, Correct? so, yeah, to repeat my top, my my bottom four, ten was Captain America First Avenger, nine was Iron Man, eight was Civil War, seven was Black Panther. Over to Chumpzilla. Okay, so that brings, uh, brings us to my bottom four, which I've got Age of Ultron, Black Panther, Infinity War, and Ragnarok. Meaning, I'll be talking about just Age of Ultron. So, this movie was not my favorite when I saw it in theaters. I walked out of there a little disappointed after how awesome the first Avengers was. This one just didn't feel as good. There was a, there was a lot of good things in it in terms of the action and the character development. and It was interesting, but at the end, I felt like it wasn't really the Age of Ultron. It was like Ultron's long weekend <laughs> and it just felt overstuffed and understuffed at the same time. I, I just didn't I had conflicted feelings. 
And then over the years, getting ready to watch Infinity War and then Endgame, I rewatched the big ensemble film. And a lot of the little things that happened in Age of Ultron started to stick out to me and became a little more poignant. It's definitely nowhere near the same level as The Empire Strikes Back in terms of being the darker sequel. It doesn't mm. rise to that level at all. But I see where they were trying to go with it. And I think its legacy definitely improves over time, especially with some of the things that are hit uh, in terms of callbacks in Endgame. You know, Tony's vision, the way things ended up. He even actually says the words Endgame in Age of Ultron when he's talking about putting a suit of armor around the world and how he's trying to, you know, create this Ultron technology to, to save the world. You know, that was his Endgame and his arc throughout the whole movies you know, is achieved finally in the end. And this is a big step to get there. So again, in hindsight, I think Endgame really gives this movie a new, uh, you know, new importance in the overall story. I can feel that. My only, and, and I agree, when you watch Ultron again, it absolutely has a place in the narrative. Like it's part of the, the meta. If you're looking at, you know, where is this arc going? You needed to have another, episode of the avengers where they're just the avengers and yeah they, they've got to fight something but they don't have to form they don't have to break apart they can just focus on some of them being friends and honestly that scene where they're at tony stark's tower the hammer lifting scene remains some of the strongest character work in this series of 23 movies but for me the overall movie is a lot of retread and I, Ultron is a fun villain, but ultimately I felt like they didn't do enough with him. And at the end, it turns into another generic giant CGI army fight like you had in Avengers without the same connection that you get in, say, Endgame where that happens. So that's that's why it didn't rank up there for me. But it, again, I, I'm not I don't think all Age of Ultron was bad by any stretch of the imagination. It would just it kind of. It was what it had to be, which to me felt a little jogging in place. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's its biggest drawback is that it is, it's the kicking of the can movie. You get Thanos in the stinger for Avengers, and then he just up and disappears for a huge chunk of time. Except in Guardians, but he's mostly just gone. Uh, I love James Spader as Ultron. I think, I mean, if you don't like James Spader as Ultron... You, just learn to have more fun in life. He's great. But yeah, it's a uh, Wanda and Quicksilver never did it for me. Uh, their fake accents are just terrible. Uh, <laughs> she went she went on to be one of the more, I think, forgettable characters in the entire series. Uh, and he mercifully was killed, thank goodness. Um, but it does, I mean, the ending's great. Uh, they come back together. A lot of fun stuff in there. Uh, love the introduction of Vision and what he brought to the table. It just has some, some pacing issues, but honestly, it wasn't that far outside of my top ten because I do really enjoy it now more so than I did sort of in the moment. And that's pretty much for the same reasons Chumpzilla outlined, is that it actually took on more significance as we drew closer to this final conflict. Uh, the visions didn't seem to matter in the moment because, well, it took so damn long for them to pay off. So 
you know, like Thor in the hot tub time machine was like, why is this happening? Oh, okay. You know, it just took too long. Which is funny because this was the movie that made it take too long. And I'll say that James Spader did not get enough to do in this movie as Ultron. Like a bit of a waste for a name that big to be the main villain. There wasn't a whole lot of villaining done. There was a lot of posturing and uh, mugging. Uh, the problem with that is he's a CGI character, so the voice work is great, but you get very little emotive stuff out of a robot who's all CGI. Yeah. And and not to mention, there is this the scene in one of the fights where Captain America tries to put him in a chokehold. So Listen, if you spent like 60 years just knowing how to fight humanoids... It seems fair that a chokehold might work. Uh, I can't. I can't blame Cap for that. Yeah, muscle man. The dumbest part of this movie is when he's downloading his, basically his consciousness into Vision. It seems to be going in dial-up. This dude can teleport anywhere in the world through the web, yet it takes fifteen hours to create Vision. Was he? Was he on America Online? <laughs> he's on Prodigy. Come on. It's a very complex neural network. Yeah. <sighs> so uh, with that, why don't you remind us one more time, Chumzilla, what was your 10 through 7? All right. 10 through 7. At number 10, Age of Ultron. Number 9, Black Panther. Number 8, Infinity War. And number 7, Ragnarok. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I will begin with my 6 through 4. So... We'll be right back. So we're back on Hops and Box Office Flops for our big MCU Top 10 Countdown. Uh, Of the 23 films, where did Captain Cash, myself, and Chumpzilla, uh, what were our top 10s? So pretty safe to say we enjoyed almost all of them anyways, but there are favorites. We just recapped 10 through 7, so now I'm going to begin with my 6 to 4. At number 6, Avengers Endgame. Number 5, Avengers Infinity War. And number 4, Avengers, so it's sort of the Avengers trio. We're not going to discuss any of those right now because, as we explained sort of at the beginning of the show, we'll talk about movies when they get to their highest ranking on one of our lists. And uh, all the Avengers movies rank somewhere higher. Uh, So Captain Cash, give us your 6 to 4. So my six to four, I think, is where I'm going to probably have my most controversial choice. Uh, Six is Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, five is Endgame, and four for me is Infinity War. So the only one we'll talk about for now is going to be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which I know people have very strong opinions about liking Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1, and I get it, it's a great movie, but Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 just hit for me and hit hard. Basically, everything that happens with Yondu wrecked me. I mean, Michael Rooker, I don't think, gets enough credit for how much he brought to this outing and how much him being successful in letting you buy that Yondu is this broken person who didn't know how to raise a child or love still wanting to do right by that person in the end. And without him, man, this movie falls apart hard. 
like his his death and the old uh i didn't do none of it right he might have been your father but he weren't your daddy fucking tears man uh and to see yondu die trying to save peter quill and honestly even uh what's his name sean gunn the uh craglin the the number two for the ravengers when he has this this yelp that Yondu gets the Ravager funeral. It's such a raw, emotional, like, he's so overjoyed that this person that he cared most about is getting the goodbye that he felt like he had deserved. Uh, it's a movie about growing beyond abuse and what it is to, to grow up in an abusive home and finding, you know, do you go with, you know, how do you forgive and how do you move beyond and are there some wounds that never heal? And it just, I, it, for me, it was really powerful. Beyond that, I mean, I really, I like that you got to just spend more time with the Guardians characters. Like, it feels like a lot of the number two movies kind of jog in place a little bit, but this one kind of saw that and said, okay, well, look, we can't resolve any of the major character arcs, really, because... There's going to be a Guardians 3, and between that and this, there has to be, you know, Infinity War and Endgame, which we didn't know the titles of at the time. So instead of trying to, like, invent some kind of world-ending thing, we're just going to focus on the emotions of these characters. And for me, that really did it. Plus, the music is great. The uh, come a little closer scene where Yondu just destroys the other Ravengers are great. Taser faces at turns terrifying and hilarious. More time with Baby Groot is so much fun. I mean, some of the drawbacks is they do make a lot of like references to previous movies, like Rocket wants to steal a prosthetic appendage again and stuff like that. And not all the, the jokes quite hit. But for someone who had become a father around the same time this movie came out, it really it hit me hard, man. Uh, so I, that's why Volume 2 is always above Volume 1 for me. I don't know what else to add. I, I love the sovereign. The the gold people are entertaining. I really this this movie is one I can just throw on and watch whenever. You're wrong on one account. Uh, Taserface is never terrifying. He's intentionally a punchline. Taserface. He's meant to get owned in the worst way imaginable. That's like the whole build. Is this guy is such a schmuck? He has this stupid name. Everybody thinks he's a joke. And then, of course, he gets blown up. Uh, but when he's murdering the, the Ravengers loyal to Yondu, it, it's pretty scary, gross. He's a straw man, Captain Cash. That's why Rocket laughs at him. Eh. Things I enjoyed about Guardian, of course, Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. I didn't even mention Kurt Russell. Yeah, Kurt Russell. Glorious, glorious Kurt Russell, who uh, they did not de-age for that scene, as I recall. I think it's just makeup. That's how wonderfully kurt russell has aged <laughs> like a fine um, wine yes like a fine wine he just gets better jack burton you are eternal which is why you're a living planet so i love him uh i would agree the come a little bit closer scene is phenomenal where the movie fails i think most for me it's long it's a little too long uh and it's punctuated with god fight which is just a cgi mess of epic proportions it's like just get this over with it just it that just it just drags at the end i'll 
it drags and it drags and it drags and for as many good character beats as there are there's just as many that are like way too it's just too much there's too much ingredients in the stew but i will say this it gave us stallone in the mcu Mm. and feige if you're listening and we know you are uh if he doesn't come back you're dead to me that's all that's all i've got to say about that so captain cash i'm not sure we saw the same movie because i think the biggest sin we had with this in terms of being a sequel is that did kind of tread water at the end of the movie the narrative really didn't advance. You've still got the Guardians of the Galaxy together. Yeah, they resolved Peter's daddy issues, but how central was that really to the overall arc? And we did lose Yondu, but okay, that's just one less background character that would have been thrown into the final battle in Endgame. They tried to up the ante with, with the special effects, and you had that big mess fight at the end, and you had the big splash scene at the beginning, uh, but none of it's as memorable or as as impactful as the original in terms of the characters and the emotion. To me, this felt like a sequel that was supposed to be bigger and better, and it was just louder and dumber. That's totally fair assessment. I contend that Volume 1 had the novelty aspect. No one had seen this before. This came out of nowhere. Everyone, including me, who is a huge Marvel fan, went Guardians of the Galaxy with the talking tree and the raccoon. Are we really? That's what we're going with. And it was a sucker punch that no one saw coming, so I get why that has such a huge emotional impact. And I'm not trying to to say that it's not a good film, but I went into Guardians 2 knowing the Guardians of the Galaxy, and I still really enjoyed it. There were like, like the, even the emotional beats I didn't mention is I love the way they use Mantis, particularly in the scene where Drax is thinking of his family and she just breaks down crying because he can, she can feel his absolute sorrow at the loss of his family. And that's something Drax carries with him everywhere. And I love that. Um, It's probably worth noting that when I saw this movie in the theaters and we got the Mary Poppins line, I turned to my buddy who, uh, who got me, I got it into an advanced screening. I turned my buddy who got me the tickets for the screening. And I said, that's my next cosplay. Mary Poppins Yondu, right there. That's what I'm doing. Hmm. It's kind of like nobody else thought to do that. Listen, I, <laughs> I can't help it that it was a very good idea. I'm just saying I executed it very well. But So I hate... I, I, the thing I hate most about this movie is that when you did dress as Mary Poppins Yondu, I had to listen to that stupid soundtrack on loop for 12 hours straight. And there's only so much of the Guardians theme song whatever it's called that I the guardians play. inferno i love Man, it i love you david hasselhoff but there's only so much i can take that's fair so my six through four one more time are guardians volume two end game and infinity war and i'm now realizing that i think this is where we talk about infinity war so my bad on that um infinity war for me just incredible that they managed to have so many characters and still make it work. I loved how distinct each group, each arc, each set piece was. You've got your your contingent with Iron Man, you got the Guardians, you've got Thor, you've got Captain America, and they're all very distinct and unique looking in terms of sort of where they're at and what they're doing, yet it still is part of an overall cohesive whole. Um, 
my only drawbacks with this movie, and I mean, and honestly, some of the highlights of this film, like Thor entering Wakanda, Captain America's arrival in the train station, all of that is is just real strong and real good. But I, ultimately, my overall problem with this movie is that it's it's half a movie. It ends on a cliffhanger. It ends on a down note, and that's that's kind of neat, and it's cool that you know. Disney had enough faith in the Russo brothers to, to let it be that way. But, but at the same time, you can't really watch this movie and go, okay, well, yeah, we're good. Uh, you, you need the, the remaining half to complete it. The other complaints is, uh, as much as Thanos is incredible, the Black Order is 100% CGI and really only about one maybe two of the black order needed to be cgi and they they do sort of stand out they stand out uh, and they're just uh, uninspired looking compared to the rest of the characters in the movie uh i love infinity war uh i had it above Endgame, and here's why i know you say it's half a movie but sometimes the half of movies are the best movies as in the two towers that is a really good movie. That might be my favorite of Lord of the Rings. The Empire Strikes Back, right? There's something to be said for having watched the Avengers basically be... They were in trouble in the first movie, but not really, right? They were in trouble because it was their own fault in the first movie. They couldn't agree on things. They argued Loki gets the jump. In the end, they beat the crap out of Loki's entire army. And the only reason anything bad happens is because the wonderfully evil uh, Powers Booth shoots a nuke into New York. Rest in peace. But this movie, it it humanizes them and it humbles them. They lose and they, they fail miserably and they have to live with the weight of that immediately as their friends begin to disappear into the ether. And I, I loved that. I loved that they had lost and it made us wait because there's nothing better as a moviegoer than knowing the sequel's coming but having to wait for it to get there because you you have to know how it ends right mm. that's sort of the, like the the mystique that's been lost with binging tv is that like you watch all 10 episodes and it's done i love that wait that like anticipation what's going to happen how are they going to get out of this i do want to give special mention to tom holland's work and uh, rdj's work when spider-man disappears because I remember uh-huh. sitting in the yeah. theater and hearing Tom Holland. I, I don't even remember exactly what it is he says when you know something's wrong. But you hear this broken, like, Mr. Stark? And I remember not being able to control myself and going, no. You're, you're not going to murder the kid. He He's 16 years. No. And to see him just, they, God, that, that was raw. I think what's really impressive about that scene is that it was not scripted. Oh, right. That's right. Way to go, Tom yeah. Holland. And uh, He's a good actor. Yeah, he and RDJ, I think, formed a pretty good relationship, and they did a great job with that scene because the emotional weight there was probably some of the, if not the most emotionally charged scene in the MCU. It's up there. I mean, there was some big stuff in Endgame, but, man, that was raw. Like you said, people were shocked. I mean, there were audible gasps in the theater. When that happened now, Shit, I was one of them. Yeah. I wasn't too shocked because I was familiar with the source material. I knew what was coming. I knew what we were going to get. 
So that kind of ruined it for me a little bit. I think I was jealous of some of the other people in the theater that had no idea that was going to happen. And, uh, yeah, that was... I can totally agree with that. Well, it's but, like, you know, uh, it's, what is it, Chekhov's gun? It's Thanos' gauntlet. You don't make a gauntlet and give the stones and not let him fire it by Act 3. I mean, that's sort of the unintentional genius of spending 20 movies creating villains who aren't worth a shit. Ah. You never think any of them are going to win, and then this guy does. Yeah. I'm sorry, but most of them are really bad, and they're, it's never believable they're going to win. Well, I think this movie has so, a bit of that villain problem, too, because the Black Order are extremely forgettable. They're totally yeah. forgettable, yeah. I, that was my really negative, It would have been much more interesting if Thanos had just been kicking ass on his own in the movie and didn't have his bumbling henchman out there doing it on his behalf. It would have made him a much more legitimate threat. He'd been a much scarier big bad if he just took the reins and... and did all that stuff. Now I realized for pacing issues, they wanted multiple things going on at the same time. Granted, but... But he can teleport, so you might as well just let him go wherever the yeah, hell Yeah, it's wants. a comic book movie. There's ways around that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, the fight on Titan was pretty impressive. Oh, I mean, sure. Was, Loved it. That was some of the best Doctor Strange we got. I mean... The Crimson Bands of Sinarak. Yeah. That actually, I think, was the best Doctor Strange we've gotten. He, it really showed... Uh, his power set in an innovative, interesting way. And uh, one of the things I guess I did mention was that this movie had more to juggle than Endgame. Oh, yeah. Because Endgame is, focuses on that core group. You know, the, the guys that have been around the longest, the guys and girls that have been around the longest. And this movie was going all over the place. And I thought they just did a really excellent job pacing it. Whereas Endgame to me is paced really poorly. Mm, agree. It drags. We'll, we'll get until there. Until you get to the end where it's just amazing. But yeah, no, so. I'm in the same camp with you. I, I definitely did the, the same deal where I did Infinity War, Endgame. It's a bigger movie because it, it carries a bigger cast the majority of it. Like you said, That's true. Endgame is much yeah. smaller to start and then it starts to balloon at the end. But, okay, there's a thing in this movie that really bothers me. And that is Thor's little story arc. This story sort of undoes some of his Ragnarok arc. You know, we got the whole line about him not being the god of hammers, but the first thing he has to go do in this movie is get a hammer. And he doesn't really use his powers quite the same way as he did in Ragnarok uh, until he gets to the battlefield, but then it's kind of like it's being augmented by Stormbreaker. And I just felt like that was kind of a weird, weird combination. I realized those movies are being done at the same time. So it wasn't necessarily that Ragnarok was a finished thing. I think they might have handled that differently. But also that whole arc gave us the biggest, you know, WTF moment in the MCU, which was the whole scene with Peter Dinklage. That whole scene just didn't make a lick of sense in terms of the production uh, time and energy wasted on it. It just seemed like a weird side plot. And the Dinklage thing was weird. His voice was weird. His lines were weird. The delivery was weird. It just felt like a different movie. And yeah. again, when good actors go bad. Yeah, yeah and I'm again, not, I'm not going to disagree. The Dinkles got, it seemed like he phoned it in kind of hard. I, I imagine it's because he's acting in front of green screen. Yeah. Uh, and the whole thing, again, Thor's this, got these new control and understanding of his powers. He should just gone in there and zapped uh, the dying star back to life instead of having to do some weird Hercules deal or Samson deal and like pull it back together with physical stuff. 
it just like there's a there's a way to comic book out of that a lot easier than the crap that they tried to push. Yeah. yeah. I don't I don't necessarily disagree. Over to Chumzilla for his six to four. Okay. So at number six, I've got Iron Man. At number five, I've got the Guardians of the Galaxy one. And at number four, I got the Avengers. So I'll be talking about Iron Man and then Guardians. Okay. For me, Iron Man is a movie that not only started the MCU, but still holds up really well. The movie's a lot of fun. The action's great. The story's okay. Not as good as some of the movies to come, but at the time, it was perfect. And it was a surprise. I can honestly say, I didn't think this movie would be that successful. I was a big comics fan. I knew who Iron Man was, but he wasn't a big name uh, in terms of superheroes. So at the time, this movie didn't seem like it was going to be that important. But again, in hindsight, it's very watchable. And it's the movie that started it all. You know, it deserves a place, you know, in the top ten. I agree with all of that. My only drawbacks for Iron Man 1 is that it is very much a movie of its time. Right? Like, you look at a movie like Infinity War, Guardians, Ragnarok. They seem kind of timeless, like they could happen at any point. You can put on Guardians in another 20 years, and it will still play as Guardians. But with Iron Man, it it very much feels like a, America is embroiled in a war in the Middle East, comma, Afghanistan specifically. And it and it feels a little, not, not dated necessarily, because you're right, it's eminently rewatchable. RDJ kills it. It's still working out what I feel like are some of the kinks in the whole process. Well, to your point, uh, this movie, they were worried about this movie. Now, this happens all the time, uh, but it was being rewritten daily on set. There was a real scramble and a sense of insecurity about how this was going to turn out. And if it failed, of course, we don't get probably the rest of the MCU. Maybe the movies that they'd already put into production. They hadn't at this point, though. That was the deal. This knocked it so far out of the park. They're like, well, fuck, I guess we'll do Thor. and Definitely going to do another Iron Man. Yeah. And it was, a, it was the proof of concept. It could work. I, I think leading with Downey is probably really what helps sell it even further mm. because... You had the person, the bedrock, the, the, the guy that was going to anchor the franchise now. He's so good as Tony Stark. Mm. You could insert him into any movie, and people would be happy to yeah. see him. you got to remember, at the time, R.E.J. was still very much on the rebound. Oh, yeah. He had to beg for this job. Yeah. Didn't he, isn't the story that he learned every line, basically, to this movie and went and performed it verbatim for them? To like show that he was like, please cast me. I can do this. I'm gonna nail this role. I don't know if I mean, that's true, but I do know it's true that he was paid significantly less on the front end than Terrence Howard, his co-star, and in yeah. part because he was basically uninsurable. So you know, he yeah, he was willing to take whatever they would give him to be in this movie, which which is kind of shocking in hindsight. But that's yeah. that's where the, that's where yeah. this whole thing started out with. It started out with a, a bit of a gamble on RDJ. It was a huge gamble. Uh, I mean, he had been doing well for for a couple of years. Kirk Lazarus, but you're still investing 
uh, a great deal in a guy who had had a lot of trouble and to his credit came through it because I mean he did not have an upbringing I think any of us would want for our kids put it that way yeah and it, it, it was a gamble I mean the whole the whole thing is a gamble it's a it's a lesser known character for for general audiences but it worked it wasn't super self-serious and he was a fun guy to have as the person to anchor that, that's a really key point the fun factor because I'll address some of Captain's comments uh, the movie's not perfect but it is very satisfying to watch and yeah, it seems a bit dated with the tie to the war in the Middle East. But you got to remember that was actually bringing the kind of the backstory of Tony Stark into the present. They were modernizing the character using some convenient stuff that people could relate to. Yeah, that whole arms dealer angle. I mean, I think it works really well. I think that's something that is timeless because, come on, war and conflict are constant, especially in fictional worlds. So that doesn't bother me. Uh, <coughs> doesn't bother me nearly as much. But to your point, Mr. Wizard, the humor and the tone of the movie, I think that's its biggest contribution to the MCU. That tone, that style, it starts with this movie, and that is felt through the rest of the films. They set the tone, this is what a Marvel movie is going to be like, and that's carried them through all 23 films. The, its second biggest contribution is the one thing that I think is its biggest failure, is that it gave us a villain who may have seemed original in this movie but then they remade him 17 times and it just got very old and uninteresting there's so many evil corporate white guys in the mcu or guys that are directly tied to tony stark in some way it just it it gets a little ludicrous to be fair the real world is full of evil corporate white guys, so... Uh. I get it, but that's why I'd rather I'd rather have interesting villains. Uh, I'd like to point out this also points to a Marvel trend of getting a big name to play a villain and then not doing much with them. You've got Jeff Bridges' yeah. movie. The Dude. The villain in this the movie dude. is The Dude. And, uh, and he's dispatched you know, quite unceremoniously in the end of this movie. Um, but Kurt Russell, you mentioned earlier, Hugo Weaving. I mean, there's a lot of big names that play the villains in these movies, and they're kind of one-offs. James Spader, you know, we've already talked about that. And somehow the best villain is a guy who was on the rise, Tom Hiddleston, who wasn't an established actor, really. He'd been in a couple things, but he wasn't Hugo Weaving, for example. And he's the guy that everybody remembers most fondly and wants back. Quite frankly. Certainly from phase one. They gave him a lot to do, though. He got a lot of screen time. Yeah, he had uh, layers to him. I know that's a foreign concept for most Marvel villains, because usually it boils down to, character A didn't like my idea, so now I'm evil. I mean, that's that's Ant-Man. Uh, I don't even... I can't remember that guy's name, but he's essentially Jeff Bridges, except younger than Hank Pym. They're the same friggin' character. Builds his own suit. It's the same thing. I would argue... And he sucks. I would argue that that's probably one of my bigger issues with Far From Home, though. <laughs> but we'll get there. Again, that's the thing. It's like the Tony Stark stuff, man. Like, come on. Hey, I feel... let, let these villains have a connection to the hero. A real connection. Not a tangential one. Like, I'm actually mad at the dead guy, but you're his surrogate, so... 
to be fair, and I know it's on none of our lists, but that's where Homecoming succeeds. Yeah, yeah. He's still directly tied to Tony Stark. He's directly tied to Tony Stark. But when Michael Keaton opens the door, when you're going to see Liz Allen and we're going to the prom. It was Homecoming. It's the name of the movie. Or home, when we're going to the homecoming dance, Michael yeah. Keaton opens the door and Spider-Man realizes his girlfriend's dad is the guy he's been fighting this whole time. There was an audible gasp in the theater. Yeah. So that, that was, was very a very cool. good emotional. Now, now you're 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 right about Far From Home, and there's a lot of like it all ties back to Tony Stark. But I think that goes to the point of why we're talking about these movies in general. It's because it started out with RDJ. Yeah. I will say this, and I've said it before. Iron Man and Tony Stark are the biggest villains in the MCU. He causes most of the problems they have, either directly or indirectly. And it's fitting that the whole MCU has basically been his arc. You know, he, he, he started it. He ends it. And his fingers and fingerprints were in it you know, all the way through. But to be fair, in defense of the corporate evil white guy problem, that is pretty accurate to the comic books as well. A lot of Tony Stark's problems in the comic books come from his corporate dealings and, and you know, uh, corporate espionage and things like that. So that's kind of true to the source material. They relied a little heavily on it, but it's true to the material. Yeah. Well, I mean, not all comic book characters have a rogues gallery that is created equal. Uh, and, you know, say, for example, Spider-Man has, a, I think, one of the better ones in, in Marvel Inarguably, comics history. The best one um, in Marvel. A lot of characters, like, you know, I love Superman. Superman's rogues gallery can be, uh, you know, pretty hit or miss. So you got to get Batman uh, It's hard to DC. Right. Yeah. Batman's Batman's got, got the best rogues gallery yeah. in DC. But here's my thing with that rogues gallery point. Prior to the MCU, I could have named you the Mandarin, Whiplash, the Grey Gargoyle, arguably like you could put in Black Widow when she was an antagonist, but for Tony Stark, it was Red Dynamo. The Crimson Dynamo? Excuse me? Yeah, you're right. Excuse me. The Crimson Dynamo. And Titanium Man? What else do you got? Well, that's one of the weaknesses of his rogues gallery in the comics. It's typically just other armored villains, right? Right. Um, You know, Iron Monger, Titanium Man, the Crimson Dynamo. Yeah, to be fair, I could have done Iron Monger. We'll get to it later uh, in the pod, but I I think there's some more stuff that could have been mined there that would have been a little more creative than what we got. Yeah, that's fair. I would agree, but it is troublesome when your your villains are basically the antithesis of you. They're just you, but evil. Uh, the like the Flash TV show has that problem. There's always another speedster. It's not interesting. That makes a great villain. It's the the dark mirror to the hero. But the problem is we've done it so many times in the past ten years that it seems kind of tired now. Yeah. So you can't keep doing it. Yeah. Okay. So what was your next one? Because you got to... Yeah, we've got to double up. Next was number five, Guardians of the Galaxy. And again, these are lesser known characters. 
this was kind of a risk. You know, there's a lot of success in the MCU up to this point. This movie seemed way outside the box. I wasn't even familiar with this version of the Guardians because I actually read the comics back in the 90s. So I knew the 90s version, which was really weird and, and not popular then either. So I was like, really, they're doing a movie about those characters, but they're different. I don't even know who these guys are. There's a talking tree and a raccoon. doesn't make any sense, but I'm in. At this point, I, I trusted in uh, Feige. I'm like, okay, this, this has to be good or they wouldn't be doing it. And I was not disappointed. The movie was great. It was something fresh. Uh, they made us care about the characters. It looked great. Yeah, I was blown away. My, my wife enjoyed it. And that's probably the best review I can give of any of these comic movies is my wife enjoyed it. I mean, she bought the soundtrack. She loved everything about that movie. Uh, Pratt was great. He really nailed it in the lead there. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was a success that I think Marvel was expecting at some level, but I don't think they expected it to be the smash hit that it was. And it, it holds up really well. And I think it was a great way to introduce some more cosmic elements to the story. And yeah, it impacted the overall arc significantly. Definitely a risk. Uh, it's a more out there property. Of course, it was one of the more necessary components to bring this whole arc together because you had to add the cosmic element. So if this integral piece sort of fell flat on its face, that would have been kind of a disaster because they do tie in heavily. Yes. And it just, oh, but yeah. it speaks to the success that they've had translating these properties that you could take a tree who says one word, a talking raccoon, uh, and just the, the, you know, the goofball straight man and surrounded by a, a sort of eclectic cast of characters. And it, and it just comes together because one chemistry in this movie is phenomenal. Uh, what I appreciate most about it is that. It brings in, they didn't want Chris Pratt for the role, right? But he auditions, he knocks it out of the park, he gets the role. He's fantastic as Peter Quill. Now, granted, he's sort of just playing his character from Parks and Rec, but less, but more physically fit. <laughs> less fat. But he's awesome. Yeah, he's great in the role. And then, of course, you bring in Dave Batista, who, as a wrestling fan, I have a great appreciation for. He killed it. There's a lot of like little elements at play that could have gone wrong. The biggest name in this movie is Vin Diesel. And he has one line. Yeah. Batista was the biggest surprise for me in this movie. I, I really agree. Worried, I was really worried he was just going to be a big lunk and kind of drag things down. He was great. His comic timing was excellent. He nailed it. And yeah, he nailed he, that role so well. And I didn't see that coming. I, I, mean, I knew him yeah. for, as a wrestler, but I had no idea what his... I'd never heard the guy talk. Let's put it that way. I'd seen pictures of the dude. I knew he existed. I'd never seen him talk or do anything because I'm not a wrestling fan. And I was impressed. Like, he nailed that role. I saw him as the monk with the iron fists. And he, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And even then, I was kind of like, eh, all right. Wait, is that the movie with uh, Russell Crowe? With the RZA and Russell Crowe, yes. yeah. Yes. Which, which Russell Crowe just appears to have, like, drunkenly walked into a movie and decided to act in it. Yes, and have sex with half the cast. <laughs> Okay. I'm aware of that movie, but I've never seen it. So Batista, as a wrestler, he could always cut an okay promo, but he wasn't like John Cena or The Rock or Stone Cold or something. So 
I really didn't see it going. I thought he was going to be a basically straight to DVD or digital release day of type actor. And, you know, then he gets this movie. He's really the funniest part of the movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, I, I really appreciate him for, for yeah, also the fact that he... Yeah, he was great in Blade Runner. I saw that on a plane. He's very Again, good, yeah. I was surprised by his performance in that as well. Because as a wrestler, I thought he was like a physical guy. He was yeah, just a great. big guy. Yeah. He wasn't one of the big talkers. He wasn't one of the flashy guys. Like you said, he wasn't a big promo guy. So I didn't know what to expect. Um, yeah, he was a power wrestler. Yeah. He nailed that role as a term. And I think another great thing about this movie is the amount of practical effects that James Gunn likes to use. That really helps this. Yes. I think uh, the makeup is clutch. Yeah. And believing those characters are there with the people they're with is also, it's important to me. I mean, we talked about the last pod. The uh, practical effects are, they just feel better in the long run than a lot of CGI is held up. And now I think we've gotten to the point with CGI where that's a little bit of a different story, but there's a hand, I mean, there's a handful of years, maybe even a decade of films where CGI was in its nascent stages that are almost unwatchable now. They just look terrible. I've, I've got two issues with this movie. Overall, I really liked the script. I thought it was tight. I thought it was efficient. I thought it was funny. But occasionally there's one too many jokes you know, in a scene. Dance on. Yeah, the, the villain was a little uh, weak, but it worked. I liked the ending. I had no problem with the dance-off. I thought that was great. I think it fit with the Tell movie. Tell them about the dance-off to save the universe. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bacon jokes are funny. But there's something in this movie that they introduce that causes a huge conflict for me when we get down to Endgame. And that's Nebula's durability. Because, again, I'll go full-on nerd here. She takes a full-on blast from whatever proton cannon device Rocket cooks up, and it rearranges her guts, and she puts herself back together and finishes the movie, and then we see her die from a pistol shot to the chest in Endgame. Wait, wait. As a fellow nerd, I have an answer to this. Uh, Nebula, shooting Nebula, would know where Nebula is weakest and would choose to shoot her in a place that would kill her. Therefore... Nebula could very easily kill Nebula if Nebula had to kill Nebula. Also, in time travel, that makes sense. It would then erase Nebula from history. I would argue that the giant blast from Rocket's thingy hit whatever spot that was in the middle of her chest. And it would have blown out the entire... She didn't have a chest. It should have been gone. Gone. What about when her sister picked up a Gatling gun and a Gatling gun from a spaceship and shot her 600 times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll t- or that time. So Nebula knows Nebula's weakness. I, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll have to think about that. Okay, so why don't you recap uh, your three, and then we'll take a quick break. We'll come back for our top three of the pod. Absolutely. So my six through four were Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and the Avengers. Thank you to Captain Cash and Chumpzilla. Folks, we're going to take a break here. This episode ran a little longer than we expected, so when we return next week, it'll be part two of our top ten MCU films countdown. <laughs>